0: My name is Keith Beavers and is cold soup considered a meal or is it an appetizer is it is it is it just like a snack What's going on, wine lovers? Welcome to episode 26 of Vine Pair's Wine 101 Podcast. My name is Keith fevers I am the tasting director of Vine Pair. It's season two, and how you doing? Screw caps. Corks. Or should I say screw caps versus corks? No, 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 no. They're just two different things. We're going to talk about the two of them, and we're going to get rid of some myths, and we're just going to, just, we're going to get into to to it. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by Talbot Vineyards. At Talbot Vineyards, we focus on crafting estate grown Chardonnay and Pinot Noir in Monterey County's Santa Lucia Highlands. Our celebrated Sleepy Hollow Vineyard is located in one of the coldest grape-growing climates in California, ideal for these two varieties. Here, the brisk wind and fog rolling off Monterey Bay create a long growing season, producing fruit-forward wines with spectacular acidity. Building on a nearly 40-year legacy of meticulous craftsmanship, Talbot continues to produce highly acclaimed wines of distinction. You know, I I'm, I'm having a little bit of an issue on how to begin this episode because at my age, no, not my age. <laughs> well, I mean at the at the the amount of time I've been in the wine industry. I was a witness to not the Introduction of the screw cap, but the implementation and the evolution of its technology and its acceptance in wine culture. And I don't know where you on your where you are in your wine journey. You could be like, "Yeah, man, Keith, I remember that. That was tough. It's gotten. We've come a long way." Or you could be like, "What's the problem? I drink wines in screw cap all the time. What happened?" Well, let me tell you the story of these two wine closures because that's really what they are wine bottle closures and we'll get a sense of like where we're at with the debate because if you don't know it was a debate and it's kind of still going on but kind of not let's get into it a cork for wine is a small piece of bark basically from a tree that tree is part of the oak family the same family that makes barrels just a different species And the thing about this particular species of oak, it has a very uh, finicky environmental preference, if you will. It grows best in sandy soils, free of any chalk. It prefers an annual rainfall between 15 and 30 inches. And it would really like temperatures never to fall below 23 degrees Fahrenheit, And the elevation, we would like to have our elevation between 300 and 1,000 feet above sea level. Thank you very much. And with those kinds of, like, nature demands, man, the oak tree for cork oak really can only thrive in the western Mediterranean. And even there, specifically in Portugal, parts of Spain, and maybe North Africa. But it's really centered in Portugal, specifically in the Alentejo region, which we talked about in the Portugal episode. Here, they have almost 2 million acres of cork trees, which represents about 34% of the world's cork trees. That's kind of a lot. I mean, they produce half of the world's corks. Wow. And when these trees turn 25, they are ready to yield commercially useful cork for the industry. And every nine years in the summer, this is according to Portuguese law, a cork tree is stripped of its bark. A hectare is like a little over three, almost three and a half acres. The average hectare of a cork forest can yield 500 pounds of cork. It's all very science-y, but this particular cork is special because it has a specific kind of cell structure that brings the corky material to life so what they do is they take this cork and they actually boil it for i think like 90 minutes to make it flexible but also to kill a bunch of molds and bacteria and stuff the wood is then rested and then it's sorted and then it's cut into the corks and then those corks are polished on each end At this point, they used to bleach the corks to sanitize them, but they found recently, I think recently, that bleach or chlorine can actually increase the likelihood of TCA being formed in the cork, which we talked about in the wine fault um, episode. And actually today, it's more common to use hydrogen peroxide, which I think we all know for cuts and bruises and stuff. And then... They're graded for aesthetic basically, for like the visual quality of the cork. The more markings on the cork, natural markings on the cork, the lower the grade. The less the markings, the higher the grade. And here's where if the cork needs to be branded for you know a winery, it's done. And then the cork is coated with a silicon film to help extractability to get out of the easier to get out of the bottle. They're then put into bags dosed with wines protector, SO2 to, you know, as an antibacterial agent and they need to be stored in an odor-free environment with a temperature not going above 68 degrees Fahrenheit and for the humidity to not exceed 70%. And just like the shock of SO2, these conditions are helping to prevent the formation of TCA. You see how they're really trying to get, (laughs) they don't want this stuff to form. Corks range between 1 and 2.3 inches. And the longer corks are meant for bottles that are going to age for a long time, which makes sense. They're going to hold up for a longer period of time. For well over two centuries, this has been the primary closure for wine bottles. I mean, it's been around much longer than that. Uh, There is evidence that the ancient Greeks and Egyptians both used not only amphora for their closures onto the amphoras vessels, but they also used large cork covered with pitch to actually close those on for vessels. But it was in the 17th century, sort of coming out of the Middle Ages and seeing that wine, if you look at some of the art back then, you can see that wine was basically still stored and served in barrels. But also in the 17th century was the innovation of glass. And as glass became more popular, glass decanters became popular as some, somewhere to put your wine in. And then, of course, there were stoppers for those decanters so they wouldn't oxidize or flies wouldn't get into whatever. And those glass, they were glass stoppers that were formed to fit specific decanters. And then they were threaded. But also in this century, it was realized how expensive glass was. So the use of cork became more and more common. The thing is, during the Middle Ages, cork wasn't really used that much because the Moors had control and conquered the land where cork trees were. And they didn't drink wine. So so this was sort of a comeback. The cork came back in the 17th century to become, you know, one of the primary closures of wine bottles. But this is before the corkscrew was invented. So what would happen is corks would be put in halfway into bottles so you could get them out. Of course, then the corkscrew was invented and everything changed. So the cork is popular. It's number one. It's the way to close your wine bottles. And there is this thought, this running thought, that the the cork is porous, therefore the small amounts of oxygen and gas exchange that happens between the outside and inside of that bottle is what helps a wine age. There's a debate there, and we're going to get into it in a second, because as modern technology became more available, there was a heightened awareness to the extent at which how many wines were actually corked at any given time. It was a little bit alarming. Also, there was more communication in modern times, so you would see there is more understanding of bottle variability. But the big deal was TCA, cork taint. That was the, the enemy. But as Jancis Robinson puts it in the Oxford Wine Companion, it's because of cork that we actually do age wine today. It was the thing that allowed us to do that. Even though it has issues, if it wasn't for the cork in its natural state, that we would actually have wines that evolve. So if you were to if you were worried about cork taint and you wanted to create a different closure for wine, it would have to check all the boxes that you liked for cork. The seal would have to be reliable. The substance would have to be inert, in that if the wine came into contact with it, no crazy reactions would happen. The ergonomics would have to be sound, easy to open, easy to close. It was easy to insert and put back in. And it'd be nice if it was relatively inexpensive to produce. And of course, the big deal, it can't have the ability to form TCA. In the late 50s, there was a French company that had a screw cap called the Stel Cap Van. And it was used primarily as a closure for spirits and liqueurs. Always forward-thinking the Australians in 1970, through a company called Australian Consolidated Industries, bought the rights to this specific closure. They were worried about cork taint. They renamed it the Stelvin cap and they began to experiment with this new technology. So, a screw cap is basically two components it's an aluminum alloy metal cap attached to a sleeve. And the second component, which is a very important component, is the plastic wadding on the inside of the cap. This is called the liner, and it usually contains a layer of tinfoil that acts as a barrier for gas exchange. This is the thing that doesn't allow oxygen to get into the wine. And over the tinfoil is a layer of thermoplastic. This is the inert surface the wine can interact with. As we learned in the sulfites episode, aluminum and wine interaction can get a little stinky. So in the early 70s, Australian Consolidated Industries is experimenting with this thing called the Stelvin cap. And in 1976, they published the results of their study. And what they showed was that the screw cap is actually ideal for sealing wine bottles if the wadding material is satisfactory. They had done, they had four reds, and four whites with uh, under screw cap, with uh, one with a cork for comparison. And each screw cap had a different kind of wadding in it. So they were just trying to figure out how it would work. And they, they came to the conclusion that when the wadding's right, the wine is sound. And of course, this was very exciting. So Australia was like, we're going to do corks. So they started moving towards this as being the, the standard closure for their wines. There was a big push for it, but... It didn't work because number one, TCA still wasn't fully understood. And number two, the consumer acceptance was like, no, no. We like the romance of a cork, thank you very much. And there were people in the industry going, but, but wait, corks help wine age. Why would you put it under a screw cap? It wasn't really into 2000 when a group of winemakers in the Clare Valley of Australia, known for its Riesling, had had enough. Their wines are very susceptible to the aromas of, or the lack of aromas that cork Taint um, produces. So they got together and they, they were like, we're going to do this vintage, we're going to do it in screw cap. Problem was those bottles and those caps are not available in Australia yet. So they actually had to get everyone together and buy 250,000 bottles from a company in France. They made a big to-do about this. It made headlines, and everything gained momentum. I actually read that years later, I think maybe six years later, some of those wines were uncapped or unscrewed, if you will, and they are aging just fine. This actually prompted the island a few thousand miles away, New Zealand, from creating the New Zealand Screw Cap Initiative in 2001. And by 2004, around 70% of the wines in New Zealand were under screw cap up from only 1% three years before. Something's working. And by 2014, 95%, 80% in Australia. An entire country is primarily under screw cap with their wines. And the wines are good. Or sound, I should say. And there's no cork taint. And you know, the screw cap isn't just like screwed onto the bottle after it's filled. The sleeve is held down tight on top of the bottle of the machine. And then these pressurized rollers come and they mold the sleeve or the cap to the ridges on the outside or the top portion of the bottleneck where the little threading is. And the cap itself is still attached to the sleeve, but with those little perforated bridges. So when you, you know when you open it up and it cracks, the wad releases, you hear a little pop and oxygen rushes into the bottle. Now the thing is, chemistry... And the aging of wine is still somewhat of mystery. I I find this so awesome. (laughs) I mean, it's frustrating, but you cannot do a scientific experiment with a compromised subject. Meaning that the second that you either penetrate a cork or open a bottle of wine or you can even put it in a syringe down into the cork, oxygen is... Affecting the wine. So the only way to really know how wine ages is to age the wine. Isn't that crazy? So there's a debate about screw caps versus cork and how wines age. This is a this is a discussion that's going to be going on for quite some time until somebody figures it out. According to the Oxford Wine Companion, science tends to lean towards the idea that Wine is always in a reductive state because it needs the absence of oxygen to reduce in which just basically just means to evolve. Others believe the porous nature of the cork allows for tiny amounts of oxygen, which I mentioned before, to allow the the small oxi- the, the minor oxidation of wine, and that ages the wine. I mean, both of these things could be true. Actually, if you take the thin tinfoil layer out of a screw cap during production, that actually allows gas exchange very similar to a cork. But what's frustrating and what's beautiful about wine is we may not know for some years until we taste wines that have aged how they do comparing, comparing them to both. Either way, though, today the screw cap is the number one alternative to the cork. It has a reliable seal, it has an inert substance, it's easy to remove and insert, and it's a pretty relatively low cost closure. I think if a cork is like a dollar, a screw cap is 70 cents. The only big cost would be smaller wineries don't often have the ability to buy the components that add on to the bottling systems and they have to pay and all that stuff. But in the end, it's a much more, in, it's, it's, it's more inexpensive. There are other corks out there, synthetic corks, plastic, you know, corks. There is something called agglomerated cork, which is a bunch of cork pieces and dust glued together that was invented in the United States. Um, there are glass corks. Again, these are corks, glass closures. They actually have a little suction cup around them and they can be fragile and expensive. But really, you know, screw cap is kind of the way to go if you're not doing cork. It's so, it was such a big deal. Actually, I can't remember the year, but Randall Graham, who's a pretty famous winemaker in the United States, he has a, a winery called Bonnie Dune. And I don't know, I think it was in 1999. I don't remember the year but he actually had a funeral for the cork and he went his and he took his entire line of wines got rid of cork and only used to this day only uses screw cap and it was a big to-do it's like okay wow we're doing a funeral it was actually the funeral he did a funeral procession down fifth avenue in manhattan it's crazy so i don't know where everybody's at with their mind and screw caps But the thing to really know is that they both do the thing. You know, cork, it is a good closure. Screw caps are good closures. Scientifically, technologically, they're great. The only thing is cork has this thing called TCA that it can form and just straight up ruin a wine. The only way that a screw cap wine can be ruined is not with TCA, but if the bottling system is is not sanitary. For example, if there's anything on the lip of the of the glass bottle before the sleeve goes down, you're compromising the wine. So it has to be very clean. Today, there's even screw caps that are used for sparkling wine. I've had them. It's awesome. It's not necessarily for champagne and like I don't know if it's I don't know if it's, a, if, it's a, if it's a pressure thing, but prosecco. I've had prosecco under screw cap. It's just cool. So it doesn't come down to which one is better than the other, like screw cap versus cork. Each one has its benefits. Some winemakers, like Randall Graham, are just going all in on the screw caps. Some winemakers use screw caps for their more entry-level wines, and they reserve corks for their age-worthy wines. Some winemakers are aging wine under screw cap. Some winemakers are doing both. Wine is... Wine is... It's whatever. It's whatever. These humans that make this stuff called wine, every decade, every generation, something changes. They figure something else out. The screw cap is just one of them. I mean, the screw cap was meant for spirits and liqueur, and now it's the number one closure for wine. It's it's just part of the evolution of what we understand in wine. We're going to keep on evolving. We're going to keep on understanding, and it's going to get better and better. Find Pear Keith is my Insta, rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from, it really helps get the word out there. day see you next week this episode of wine 101 is sponsored by talbot vineyards at talbot vineyards we focus on crafting a state-grown chardonnay and Pinot noir in monterey county's santa lucia highlands our celebrated sleepy hollow vineyard is located in one of the coldest grape growing climates in california Ideal for these two varieties. Here, the brisk wind and fog rolling off Monterey Bay create a long growing season, producing fruit-forward wines with spectacular acidity. Building on a nearly 40-year legacy of meticulous craftsmanship, Talbot continues to produce highly acclaimed wines of distinction.